everybody. Welcome to Your Teen with Sue and Steph. I'm Sue. And I'm Steph. And we are the co-founders and owners of Your Teen Media, the resource for parenting tweens and teens. And today we're talking about modern kids who are struggling to grow up and to create fully independent lives with Dr. Mark McConville, the author of Failure to Launch, Why Your 20-something Hasn't Grown Up and What to Do About It. But before we talk to him, we're going to talk about our own experiences because our kids have mostly grown and left the nest. So we have a lot of experience with Dr. Mark McConville's story. All right. So, I mean, I thought Dr. Mark McConville gave us such strong, solid advice about what to do with our kids so that they don't end up not launching. And some of them I wasn't particularly good at. So I was laughing when he, his first example was give the kids real responsibility in the family, like, you know, have them walk the dog, take out the trash. And my kids, they put together a PowerPoint presentation to convince us to get a dog. And in there was this massive commitment to walk the dog. And we, like many other families, failed. <laughs> right. I would say most of us have. But they promised, they swore. They said like, oh no, we're not like those other kids. We promise. Same in your Mm -hmm. house? Different things, right? Like it's it's interesting. I feel like we got better at it as the kids got older, but maybe it's because they got older and so they started doing stuff. Yeah. I do look at other families like that where the kids do all of like the yard work and all of like the outdoor stuff. I'm like, yeah, how did they do that? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I think they told them. I think they told them to do it when they were younger cuz that did not happen in my house. But I Oh my mean, god. I honestly like it with the commitment they made to this dog and then how we turned into every other story where Dan and I walk the dog. It it just it's I don't know, something really funny in that story. So one of the other things that Dr. McConville spoke about that I like talking about this one much more cuz I I think we did a better job at it. So who wants to focus on <laughs> on the stuff we did really badly? But the idea was that if you your kid wants something, have them participate in the financial responsibility. We did that. Like we didn't make them pay for so much, but we made them split with us. Yeah, that, same. You did? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That one we did well at. That one we did well at. And in fact, many times they're like, yeah, I don't really want that. So they want, in my house, it was like, I want to buy an Xbox. And so we said, well, we'll split it. And that kid was, it was hysterical. They shoveled snow. And then when they had enough money, they said they didn't want to shovel snow anymore. And we were like, you have people relying on you in the middle of winter. <laughs> you're going to get your Xbox and you're going to keep shoveling snow. So that was another really good lesson. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah, I think, I mean, it, there's so many of these things where our generation, where we've like tried to make things easier for them, where making things easier for them is not necessarily, and in fact, probably flies in the face of getting them to adult. So like once I got in my head that this is like actually good for them and all of these skills, and obviously our, our listeners will hear, you know, him telling the story of the kid, call, the mother calling the, uh, I think it was the dentist's office when the kid was worried that the dentist was going to be mad at him. And it's just funny. We just had a similar situation with my nephew and it was about calling the bursar at school. And, you know, I think when the, when you realize it actually empowers the kids and you see how it can change them, it's so much easier to do those things. But sitting on the front end of a lot of those things, you're like, ah, oh, it'll just be so much faster if I do it, or it'll just be so much more efficient. But the reality is, 
there are so many easy ways for them to start adulting. But until you hear someone say it, then it's like, oh, yeah. It's like, I've told the story a million times with my girlfriend with the dishes, loading the dishwasher. And when she would tell me her kids would load the dishwasher, I'm like, oh, my God, you must have a lot of chip dishes. And she's like, well, you have to decide what's more important. His story about the, the calling the doctor's office, I had one kid in particular who just wouldn't do it and was like, I can't, I won't, you've got to. And so one day I, we were sitting next to each other and I said, okay, I'll do it. And then I did that mean, kind of mean. So I called, I got put on hold and I said, oh my God, I really have to run to the bathroom. Just hold the phone for me. I'll do it as soon as I get out. And of course, while I was running somewhere, probably not the bathroom, they picked up and she had to do the whole call. She was so mad at me, but I was like, I don't care. You know you can make a phone call now to the doctor's office. <laughs> so sometimes you just have to do something toward the goal of adulting, even if it's not the perfect scenario. It is so true. It is so true. And, you know, the kids are never going to look at you and say, at least they never looked at me and said, wow, that was so good for me. <laughs> that, if you're expecting that, that's a really bad setup. I really do think there are so many ways to do it. But again, I had to have somebody say it, you know, like I couldn't conjure them up. But once I heard people, you know, experts we've talked to, and obviously they'll, they'll hear it again. Then I was like, oh yeah, that's really good. Well, I mean, it goes to this whole point of like, why would a kid know how to do some of the things we ask of them? We don't know how to parent them until people give us advice. And Dr. McConville gave like just the funniest story about how he felt like all of these examples were similar to when his wife would give him a, a grocery list. <laughs> and it would have like, you know, Dijon mustard and he'd have this like panic feeling of like, but I don't know where Dijon mustard is in the grocery store. And I don't know if your husband is like this, but mine also gets that very like, seriously, you're giving me this list and I'm supposed to figure out where everything is. That's a good analogy. That's a good analogy. I, I, like anything, how do you know? How do you know? And I think it's so easy for us at our current age, just to be like, oh my God, how does she not know how to do this? How does he not know how to do that? But it's true. How do you learn? And I think, right, instead of getting upset or getting like put out by it, it's that mindset of like, okay, I'm going to teach them a really great skill right now. So, so a lot of times for me, it's like flipping that the narrative a bit. Yeah, we're doing them a favor. They don't know it. Exactly. Pissed, but we're doing them a favor. <laughs> exactly. And, and maybe one day, but maybe, you know what? The goal is when they're having this conversation with their kid, <laughs> they come back to you and say, <laughs> yeah, I get it. Because that's mm -hmm. what it will take. No one gets it in the middle of it. So up next is our conversation with Dr. Mark McConville. We can't wait for you to join us. Hey there. I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover, Sleepover Cinema. Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. 
Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcast.com. See you soon. Our guest today is Dr. Mark McConville, a clinical psychologist specializing in adult, adolescent, emerging adult, and family psychology. Okay, and this is super exciting because this is the very first time we've done with this, but we are having a two-part series with Dr. Mark McConville because his book about failure to launch has two components to us to it for our audience. One is, what do you do in high school to prevent this from happening? That's the one you're listening to right now. And next episode is going to be about what do you do if your kid is in your house when they should be on their own and you can't figure out what to do, how to get them launched. So two-part series with Dr. Mark McConville. Mark, thank you so much for being here with us. There's an epidemic of failure to launch that we hear about everywhere. In fact, you wrote the book, Failure to Launch. And it's such a great book. I really recommend that parents get go out and get the book. It is easy to read, engaging, entertaining, and also so instructive. I mean, really such a such a gift to us. So we're talking to parents of teenagers, and none of us envision a young adult living in our basement after high school. But we hear these cautionary tales. So first question to you is, is there one thing we can do while our kids are in high school that can best guarantee that they won't end up back in home? Yes, yeah, and it has to do with either walking the dog or taking out the trash. Having them participate in the family in an active way where they're contributing. You know, we are in an an era of supportive parenting. I've watched parenting evolve from, from my own parents back in the dark ages through the kind of cultural revolution of the 60s and 70s, parents became enlightened. And now parenting is very child-centered. Most children, at least in educated families, are desired, they're planned for, they're chosen. And so your generation of parents does a better job of supporting kids than any generation in history. So we have kids who are better prepared academically. They have more support for learning disabilities they have more, they have summer camps for their sports. I mean, they are really just so supported. And we see, we see an awful lot of high-flying kids on that account. And what gets lost in the mix and often not noticed is the idea of the kid having to pull his or her weight, some responsibility, the summer job that's not negotiable. It's not just for educational purposes. It's so that you can contribute to your soccer summer camp that's going to cost $800 or whatever. So that's probably the, the, the thing, the single thing that, that uh, kids being given real responsibility and being held to it throughout. And the earlier, the better, of course. You start this around age eight or nine, you're not having knock them down, drag them up battles with your 16-year-old. What do parents do now? If they haven't done those things, is it too late to start doing those things? No, I don't think so, because... 15-year-olds and 16-year-olds, they develop um, really voracious appetites. There are things they want to do, places they want to go, activities they want to engage in, devices they want to own. Make them participate in that. You want a new Xbox, iPhone, your friend's family is going skiing, and, and they want you know you to pay your portion of it. Put that on your kid so that your role isn't 
just being the ATM machine, you become more of a financial counselor where you're saying to them, well, let's sit down and figure out how you might earn whatever it is, $1,000 for that new phone. I'm not going to abandon you. I'm going to help you. But I'm not going to just be your ATM machine where all you got to do is press the right code <laughs> and I spit out the bucks. I want one yeah. of those. So, yes, you can. <laughs> at this age, yeah, don't we all? You, you certainly, at, in middle, middle teenagers, have a lot of things they want. They become conscious of fashion. As I said, devices. If they're in athletics, they get interested in extra athletic training, you know, a batting coach, that sort of thing. We'll make them participate in the financial responsibility for that. This whole conversation about failure to launch is about independence and freedom. And aren't, aren't we wired as people to want to get away from our, our family of origin? Well, some of us are. And I would say that most of the, the kids that I've worked with who are very much attached to their family of origin, even though they're 23, 25, 27, 31 even, most of them deeply desire to be independent of their families, but they feel incapable of doing it. So they feel trapped in their families. Sometimes there's a superficial gratitude, but more frequently, more common is an abiding resentment. I'm dependent on you. You know, anytime you're truly dependent on someone else, sooner or later resentment shows up. And a lot of these kids are resentful of their dependency. Let's stay on this theme of of independence. You talk about three areas where parents can help their kids get ready for college, medical, academic, administrative. Can you give examples of how we can help our kids gain their independence in each of those areas? I love this story because it's one of these nuggets that kind of really tells so much of the whole story. I had a 19-year-old college student call me. I'd seen him back when he was 14, 15, 16, And so out of the blue, he reaches out, emails me, actually. Can I come in? It's it's June. College is maybe a week out. And he comes in, and he wants to tell me about his mother. He says, she didn't change. You told me she would change. She didn't change, right? So he's complaining about his mother. He's sitting here in the office. It turns out, quite by happenstance, They have a mechanical problem with one of the family cars. So she had driven him to the session and was waiting out in the waiting room. So I talked him into bringing her in, which he was reluctant to do. But we brought his mom in and I just sat back for five minutes and watched them. It's like spontaneous combustion. They go at it. And the the theme of their dispute is that he's taken a summer job, which is terrific. He has a dentist appointment scheduled and it conflicts with his work hours. His mom wants him to call the dentist to reschedule, and he won't do it. He's got every ridiculous excuse in the book. He's too busy, she has time, she knows the dentist, he doesn't. He goes, and, and finally, I interrupt, and I say to him, I'll just, I'll call him Josh. I say, Josh, what do you think happens when somebody calls a dentist's office to reschedule? And he says to me, they probably get pissed. Anyone who knows healthcare <laughs> knows that dentists have the highest rate of no-show appointments, right? So if you call your dentist to reschedule an appointment, they want to send you flowers, right? <laughs> he doesn't know how the world works. So I said to mom, and this is the instructive bit, you don't have to do it for your kid and you don't have to abandon them. 
you can tutor them. I said to mom, would you be willing to call the dentist's office right now in the office and put them on speakerphone and do this for Josh? Okay, she does. She calls the dentist's office. Oh, Mrs. Brown, thank you so much for calling. Oh, of course, no problem. Next Friday afternoon. Yeah, you know, they, they are delighted, They're, right? And she hangs up the phone and Josh does the classic, oh. <laughs> I mean, that is like a parable, right? He doesn't, he doesn't know. It's something utterly simple, but he's never done it. The parent doesn't see, doesn't understand the resistance because the parent knows it's the simplest thing in the world. But there are so many things that fall under that category of simple, ordinary, administrative tasks that are utterly simple once you've done them one time. But when you haven't done them a single time, you know, I've had kids come into my office, they have a check to fill out that mom signed. They have, you know, 26 years old, they have no idea how to sign a check. They're embarrassed as embarrassed could be. But that kind of thing happens all the time. And so adults need to be a little more like, I'm not gonna call for you, but come here. Let me show you how to do this, right? You don't wanna go down to the registrar's office or call them and tell them you have to drop that course. Let's do it together. Those are those little administrative nuts and bolts that so many kids in this 18 to 25 age range, they treat as if they were mountains to climb only because they don't know how to do it and they're afraid they're gonna be in some small way humiliated because they'll do it wrong or say something stupid. They don't know what to ask for. It's what I feel when my wife tells me to go to the, the Heinen's and get a certain kind of <laughs> Grey Poupon mustard. You know, like that brings out the 20 year old in me, <laughs> right? And I summon this modicum of courage to turn and ask this 19 year old person that works there and say, could you help me with the mustard? You know, and it's like, it's just a twinge of like a little flashback to what it was like to be that age. I feel a little stupid. I should know this on my own, but I don't. That's the administrative side of learning to manage the non-glamorous nuts and bolts of your own life. Wow, that is the easiest fix. Like that is so helpful. Okay, so onto a different space that we hear a lot about are kids not getting their driver's license. Now, my kids are just old enough, my older ones, that they raced. Like the day they could get it, they were there. So what happened? What's happening now? What is this reflective of? Today's young people, now this is, there's research to support this. Uh, Jean Twenge from one of the California universities wrote a, a wonderful book called iGen. She's a demographer. She studies what are the behavioral markers that indicate we have now spawned a new generation of young people. There actually is a science to that. And so she wrote a book documenting her latest research. And she said, today's, now let's say young people, let's say 13 to 28, they are they're doing less drugs, believe it or not. They're getting pregnant less often. They're less rebellious. They have calmer relationships with their parents. Taken as a whole, they have smoother, the strum and drong of adolescence is not nearly so prevalent. The early, she writes this, that the early interpretation was that her, this generation is growing up faster than previous generations. But as the data rolled in and they had more dots to connect, they came to the opposite conclusion. 
today's young people are growing up slower. And it doesn't show up in high school where they're less combative with their parents, easier to negotiate, more likely to be collaborative, more likely to sit at home on a Friday night and watch a movie with mom and dad. But when we get to that jumping off point, time to leave home for college or the armed services or a quote, real job, we are seeing a much higher degree of anxiety, lack of self-confidence, lack of certainty than we've seen in earlier generations. And the driving, the avoidance of the driver's license is, is just, it's a sign of that. It's something I used to hear earlier in my practice, go back 20, 30 years ago. I would hear it half a dozen times a year. Now I hear it four times a month. And not from 16 and 17 year old parents, but from 23 year olds, kids who are, they just, they've kind of ruled that out of their life. Does that worry you? Is that something we should be trying to fix? It does worry me. I mean, the whole, I just see it as symptomatic. It's not the problem. It reflects this larger problem of the adult world feels overwhelming and intimidating. Some of the expectations, I need to get a job. I either need to be in school or get a job. The kids who make it in school, college, they they are ahead of the game because college doesn't really require you to grow up all at once. It's a gradual process. You've got at least four years, right? At least, more and more kids, five and six. But it's time, they, they call it a developmental holding environment. The environment literally carries you forward. It's hard to be a college student for three or four years and not at the end of that, just be more worldly, more socially skilled, more comfortable dealing with adults better decision maker. Those things kind of happen because the environment just kind of introduces you to those things. We're getting more and more kids dropping out of school, retreating to home. The pandemic played a big part in this. Kids whose comfort zone just shrunk. You know, they they now, they're hermits sometimes in their own bedrooms. And the wider world feels mysterious and daunting to them. And college is a, it's a vestibule to the adult world. It's a, a portal. It's not really the adult world, but but by the time you get out, you feel much more. So more and more kids are bailing out of that and, and are just feeling overmatched by what they believe is expected of them. So, Mark, you touched on this idea of having the kid with, we'll call him Josh, <laughs> make that doctor's appointment, the dentist appointment in the office or cha- changing that appointment. But when do we know to step back? And how do we do it, right? So the doctor's appointment, that's a, that's a great example. But how do we know if it's time? And is it the same for all kids? Yeah, well, the answer is, of course not. Anyone who's got more than one child knows that there's a, an asynchrony that, you know, th- this one grows up faster than that one. It's kind of like putting your finger on a pulse. You play it by ear. There's a lot of educated guesswork in parenting. You know that. And so uh, let's say I have a 16-year-old who wants to drive with his best friend and his best friend's older sister, who's a college student, because they want to go to a concert overnight in Columbus, Ohio. How do I know if that 16-year-old is capable of handling that? Well, there is no manual to pull out, right? I mean, you look at track record. Do they have track record of kind of, um, you know, phoning in at the right time, coming in sober, all those things? But nonetheless, it's a gamble. So we make these calculated gambles with teenagers all the time. I think of it as letting out the leash. 
you let out the leash, you pay very careful attention to see, did they manage that degree of responsibility or did it seem too much for them? And if it's too much, you pull the leash in. I think parents do this instinctively and they have forever. The closest I've come to a method with teenagers is negotiation. You don't do a lot of negotiation with 10 year olds. You kind of tell them, this is what you can do. This is what you can't do. This is when you have to be home. But your 15 year old will say, but, 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 can I be home at 11.30 instead of 10.30? And they'll give you some reason why that may be cogent, it may be absurd. But they, they wanna negotiate and that's a lot of what you do with kids that age. You decide how much am I gonna concede? What am I gonna get for it in return? All right, you and your friends are planning to watch Rocky Horror Picture Show with Josh's dad. And so that's gonna take you until 11.15. All right, but I need to call Josh's dad. Oh, no, 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 no. Well, I just need to call Josh's dad. I wanna make sure that he's up to the task. And that's a quid pro quo. If you're not okay with that, then the answer is no. And the horse trading is about, you want a little bit of freedom, okay? I want a little bit of reassurance. If you keep your end of the bargain, then I know you're a solid trading partner. Anyone who's ever raised teenagers know that at least part of the time, they are not reliable trading partners, right? So a huge part of parenting a teenager is you make a deal, you watch them break the deal, and then you withdraw the deal. And that's parenting. We all had it happen to us. You know, yeah, you can go out, be home at 11.30, you get in at 12.15, and the next weekend your parent says, where are you going? You're not going anywhere. You're in this weekend. Why, why am I in? Well, because last weekend you promised us you could self-manage and get yourself in on time. Clearly you weren't able to do it. So this weekend you're home. You know, we that's the ebb and flow of, of learning this, the critical lesson the lesson we want to see all 18-year-olds have mastered is my rights and privileges come with obligations. And as much as I would like them to be separated, right, I want the privilege. <laughs> I'm not terribly interested in the obligation. Your job as a parent is to show them that those are inextricably linked, right? And if once your kid makes that connection, it's what Piaget called a cognitive schema. It's an understanding pattern. Once the kid gets that pattern, I gave you my word, I better keep my word because that's how I keep my social freedom. Once I've computed that, that is a, that's a given, then I become pretty competent at managing myself. And we expect kids 17, 18, 19, 20 to be capable of that. When you tell me that the rules of the game are of parenting a teenager and you define it in that way, I think I can do the job much better because I see a bigger goal. Like I see a goal that this kid has to walk away with that skill set in order to do well in life. So thank you. Here's the story in my house. I'll do it in a minute. I'm doing it. I'm going to do it in a minute. Okay, so then this whole story starts to work together of me nagging and them saying in a minute. So how do we get out of that terrible thing? Let's take the, the negotiation protocol. I'll do it in a minute. I say, well, I need, the dog needs to be walked before dinner. You know, frankly, you have a point. I don't actually need it done now, but dinner served at 6.15. And can you assure me the dog will be walked and you'll be back and the paws will be wiped off 
by the time we sit down for dinner? And of course you say yes, right? And I say, terrific. Do we have a deal? And I'm going to be a little theatrical about it because I want this to be memorable. I will extend my hand. Come on, shake on it. All right. By 6.15, you know. And what happens at 6.15? <laughs> we both know what happens. Like the dog hasn't been walked. And I say to you, not to worry. I'll walk the dog after dinner, right? And, um, oh, time to clear the plates and get them in a the dishwasher. And you say to me, in a minute? And I say, no, 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 no. An hour ago, we made a little deal about walking the dog. I think I kept my end of the bargain because I didn't say a word. You didn't keep your end of the bargain. Dishes in the dishwasher now. You can go talk to your friend on the phone later. Sorry. It's the same lesson, right? I am. You're, most teenagers will say that. I own my time. Let me schedule the chores. And my advice to parents is absolutely go there and do it. And particularly with younger teenagers, expect them to not keep their end of the bargain. That's not a failure. That's a, that's a learning opportunity. So when you say to that kid tomorrow, when he says, I'll walk the dog as soon as I'm done with this video game, you say, mm, you know, actually, I can pull the plug on the video game or you can set it down. You're walking the dog now. Why? Well, because last night... When you said in a minute, and I said, okay, you didn't keep your end of the deal. You're calling, when you call kids this age on their behavior, it is far more powerful to call them on not keeping a bargain than it is to call them on the particulars. You didn't take out the trash. You didn't walk the dog. You didn't push the dishes in the dishwasher. Now, that is, ah, you're nagging me. But no, look, I treated you momentarily as an equal. Quid pro quo. I made a deal. You asked for something. I took your request seriously. I honored it as an equal. I took your request for in a minute on par with my need to have the dog walked. You blew it. Sorry. Now, the, not that your kid is logically going to process that through an adult logic machine, but at some intuitive level, they get that not keeping your end of the deal, that's, that's a fair call right? That's a fair call. Much more pregnant as a learning experience than you didn't walk the dog. I'm upset. Walk the dog. You make deals. You make deals. You expect them to not keep them. The whole bit of parenting a teenager is teaching them how to keep deals. Do you think that a kid having a, a job in high school can remedy some of these things we're talking about? Remedy, that's a strong word, but it certainly is an influence because uh, with jobs, for one thing, you're working for someone other than mom and dad. It's a really, if you think of it, a incredibly powerful experience. I've learned this many, many times. I learned it when I was a teenager. And my parents said, you know, Christmas vacation, you're going to work. And we weren't, you know, we weren't blue collar. We were educated, fairly well to do, but that was philosophy. But where I, this really hit home was when I, years ago, I'm seeing the college dropouts. They're on what I call academic rehab. And what I learned was that the families where the parents required the kid to work, you know, typically 19, 20, 21, and he's working up at the produce department in Heinen's, those kids got much better in therapy much faster. And I, what dawned on me was that the, the real therapist wasn't me. <laughs> it was the produce manager. <laughs> you know, it was... 
it was an adult in the real world that took the kid seriously, that depended on him for his service, that appreciated him. And so here he is participating, certainly not a career path, but he's being taken seriously by adults. And you can have that experience at 14, at 16, at 18. I just think it's it does a lot to shape and impact how you, you begin to take yourself more seriously. We hear about these kind of kids all the time that are they're just defiant. And it and the there's a little bit of fear in the house, like of disrupting that kid and setting them off. So how do we deal with that type of a kid with all like do the things you're saying work in that situation or is that a whole other game? Yeah, they may or may not. I mean you're you're talking about the of the the spectrum of clinical challenge for a psychotherapist that's at the very end of that spectrum. The kid who's oppositional to ODD, you know, and short of sending them off to, you know, three months in Utah, what can you do at home with kids like that? Well, the, the first thing is you look at, well, how am I enabling this kid? How am I catering to the role of being the, the subordinate parent? That kid makes demands. Like a conversation I've had with 200 mothers over the years is, if your kid verbally mistreats you, you know, you're an effing bitch, right? Your services as a cab driver are automatically suspended for the day with no fanfare, no fanfare, just sorry, not available. He was counting on you to drive him somewhere, get in the car and go to the mall, disappear. You know, something that says this relationship, even though you're only 15 and I'm, you know, 42, there still is a dimension of this where we have to see ourselves as existential equals, where we have to treat each other with respect. And when you curse and swear at me in a demeaning way, I'm just not available. There was a um, very, very well-known family therapist from Italy, Salvina um, Palazzoli. She wrote a book and she dealt with families of highly dysfunctional children. Families where basically the children ran the family and, and always at least one of them was a teenager. So today what we would call ODD kids, sometimes bipolar diagnoses. This book was written 25 years ago. She found that the single most powerful intervention and remarkably, it was very difficult to get parents to do it, but she would coach parents to disappear and not to take a weekend at a hotel, but to take half an hour in the afternoon on a trip to the drugstore without telling the kids where they were going. And what it did was it was this sort of momentary, manageable, non-damaging shock experience that we are not in control, we kids, right? So a lot of dealing with that kid who's wildly out of control is really about how do you empower a parent? Because what it does to parents, it pushes them to rage, right? And, and when you're in, in rage, now you got you got two 14-year-olds in the room instead of one. I am like the gold medalist in running away from home. So thank you for that validation. <laughs> okay, I'm going to ask you this question because it, I feel like in my house with five kids, all who have been through college, that 11th grade, they were, they were, it didn't look like they were ready to go to college. And by the end of 12th grade, they were entirely ready to go to college. So how do you know... The change from 
from 11th grade to 12th grade was like having a newborn to one-year-old. That's so interesting because I have this rubric that I often will share with parents. Let's take you have a kid who doesn't do his homework, right? Seventh grader, you sit him down at the kitchen table. Sorry, dear, you're not going anywhere until the homework's done and I want to see it. You can do that with an eighth grader, but it takes a lot more muscle power, determination, and spousal support. Ninth grader, um, you're doing it with one arm tied behind your back. It's difficult. It, you know, you may or may not. It's a bit of a coin toss. A 10th grader, God bless you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to revert to my childhood Catholic ways and say a novena for you. <laughs> Light a candle <laughs> because you don't have much. But 11th grade, you're done. Forget it. At 11th grade, whether you want it to be that way, whether the kid wants it to be that way, the whole academic enterprise now belongs to the child. And they know it and you know it. It's just something in, I don't know if it's genetically programmed, but it's, and teachers will tell you that. This is when kids, they begin to hear the hoofbeats of the future. You know, the future is no longer a rumor. For example, typical scenario, I'm on a lacrosse team. I'm a junior. I'm a terrific athlete. My teammates, the seniors, are all buzzing about what campuses they're visiting, who's applying where. All of a sudden, it's not the adults who are preaching to me about college, it's my peers, right? So there is something in the socio-cultural milieu that changes pretty dramatically in 11th grade, particularly if you're in a community, a public school community or private school where education and educational future is just, it's in the air, it's in the atmosphere. So that's often when you, you see the panic. Kids become more anxious in junior year. Nine times out of 10, that anxiety is put to good use. Every once in a while, we see a kid fall apart. For some kids, that 11th grade of not being ready corrects itself. And for some kids, at the end of 12th grade, they're just still not ready. Is there, are there any, like, can you give any red flags? Or is it just like, you just got to give it time and see where it goes? Yeah, well, it, you know, there are, very, there are different subtypes of what you're describing. There is the kid who by 11th grade has said, I can't do school. There's often more of a, a story because it's not a family with no educational history or pedigree. It may be that um, the older siblings went to Ivy League schools or you know, the level of achievement is so overwhelming or this is the kid who's brilliant but ADD. And so while he's been told he's smart forever, he's never produced academically because he doesn't have the developed executive function. So there's often a story for that kid and often that kid, we'd look for a different path, something that, um, you know, we're trying to overcome the legacy of shame and failure that he or she is carrying in their breast. A different subtype that's a little more interesting is um, what is I call the senior year collapse. You know, they're, they're cruising. They're at mile 20 of the marathon. They're kind of worn out, but, you know, it's downhill the last part of the race, and all they got to do is write a couple of three-page English essays and, and they're graduating and all of a sudden they can't write those essays or they can't get out of bed in the morning and um, they're in severe danger of not graduating. And then we're looking at something that's more psychodynamic, something about the future which is no longer a rumor and no longer over the distant horizon. It's, it's, it's like being on one of those long moving runways on the airport. It's like, oh my gosh, we're coming to the end. It's time to hop off and 
and now I have to ambulate on my own. And for some kids that becomes, sets off a kind of overwhelming panic of not being ready. That's where a really good therapist can help. A gap year, I am so relieved that gap years today are seen as viable pass forward. They used to be seen as signs of failure. Now they're not, they're seen as just another avenue of growth. Mark, we're gonna wrap up with the question we ask all of our guests. And that is, what is the biggest myth parents have about getting kids ready to launch? I think the biggest myth is the belief that the quality and status of the college you get your kid into is the thing that most determines their launching angle into adult life. Among educated families, communities, schools, it's close to universal. It's completely false. So it turns out things like the status of the university, zero predictive ability. Grade point average, close to zero predictive ability. Involvement in campus life, huge predictive ability. Right, so we're talking about people who are in their 40s who are looking back saying, those four years, five years changed my life. And the thing that led them to that conclusion was how involved they were in campus life. In a nutshell, what that describes is fit. Did this campus, this school, was it a good fit for my kid? Did my kid feel like I belong here? These are my people. I'm not smarter than all of them. I'm not dumber than all of them. I fit in, I'm pulled upward, but at the same time I feel smart enough and competent enough. And that's the biggest myth that I think that people It says Michael Thompson, the noted author, says parents look at college acceptance as their report card on parenting rather than thinking, what is best for my kid? What is what will make me feel the most proud? Dr. Mark McConville, this was amazing. And the book is amazing. Failure to launch. Thanks so much for taking the time to be here with us. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us for the Your Teen Podcast. If you have any topics that you want us to talk about, let us know on our Facebook page or email editor at yourteenmag.com. If you're someone who reads an article and thinks of that one friend who has to read it too, think of our podcast the same way. Please share with that friend who's going to say, oh my God, I can't believe I didn't know about Your Teen with Sue and Steph. And do us a favor and review and rate the show on the podcast platform of your choice. You can find more from us at yourteenmag.com, at evergreenpodcast.com, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Your Team with Sue and Steph is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producer Michael D'Aloya, plus producer Hannah Leach and audio engineer Eric Coltnow. We'll see you next time. Hi there, I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. 
I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no.